Last week we began looking at the basic faith, the Bible. Um, we looked at two basic things we believe about the Bible. First was that God wants to communicate with us. He communicates to us and, and speaks with us in the scriptures. And second, that the Bible is truth. Not just true and accurate, but actual truth to live your life by. It is a truth principle to use to guide all aspects of your life. I said the, this, this faith in the Bible is the basic, basic faith. For it's from it that all other basic faith come. Because here's the truth, or here's a fact, that whatever truth source a person picks to guide their life, it, that is an act of faith. They believe this source that they pick is true and right and good for guiding them. And so we turn to the Bible uh, for our instructions. And it is kind of in the Bible we find it telling us about the Bible. And so we turn to there for our truth. Today we're going to continue thinking about this basic, basic faith, the Bible. And we're going to look at three eyes to believing the Bible three eyes to believing the Bible. They are inspiration, inerrancy, and enlightenment. All right. I know I didn't spell enlightenment right. It really starts with an E, but I needed an I. And since I believe in relativity and relative truth, this is the true way to spell enlightenment to me. And so you can't say anything about it. If you don't get that joke, you'll need to watch last week's sermon when we talk about absolute truth. No, there is a point to it, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But those are the three things we're going to talk about today. Inspiration, inerrancy, and enlightenment. These are our, our three basic beliefs about the Bible and how it is that God communicates and we put our faith in the Bible um, from these. First, inspiration. The first I is inspiration, which simply means God breathed. That's how I would define that. That uh, it comes from a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That word inspired means God breathed. Um, one of my favorite illustrations I've ever heard about this is from one of my, my, my theology professor in seminary. He was talking about looking at this as the condensation of God's breath. Much like if you or I were to take our glasses and we would breathe on them to kind of clean them, there is a little fog, you know, kind of condenses on the cold glass when you do that. And that's really the condensation of your breath. And so he says, you know, that's what the Bible is. It's this condensation of God's breath that you can actually see it and hold it within your hands. This means that's what inspiration is. In 2 Peter, though, chapter 1, starting with verse 19, the Bible explains a little bit of the mystery of how that happens. It says, so we have the prophetic word made made more sure to which you now do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, 
but men moved or carried by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, this is what we uh, see or believe happened, that, that the Spirit of God took the biblical writers and moved them along or carried them along so that they wrote down the actual words of God, that this is God-breathed. And we believe in inspiration, that the, the Bible is coming from God. I want us to take just a moment, though, And see that this is also what Jesus seems to believe about the Bible. And so it's not only what we hold, we see Jesus holding the same kind of idea. So Jesus, when it comes to Jesus on inspiration, we can look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. But he said, this is Jesus, but he answered and said, said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so he's referencing Scripture and saying this comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus had this idea of inspiration that that the Scriptures were the Word of God. They were the breath of God. They were inspired, and, and it's God talking to us. If you know where this passage comes from, it's when Jesus is using Scripture to fight off or... or deal with the temptations of his life. And he's relying on the accuracy and the the inspiration of Scripture that this is what God says, and so this is what I'm going to do. So that's our first belief about the Bible. When we come to it, we believe it's inspired, that it is God-breathed. It is the condensation of God's breath. It all comes from God. And this leads us to the second I, the second I in the belief of the Bible. And that's inerrancy. The word inerrancy means to be without error. There are no mistakes. And so we believe that the Bible is truth, but also true. That it's without error. That it's it's accurate. Um, there's another word that uh, I read some debate about that may be even stronger than inerrancy, though, when we talk about the Bible. And that's the word infallible. Inerrancy means to not have error. Infallible means to be incapable of error. And so I would say we believe both, that the Bible is accurate, it's inerrant, but it's also infallible. It can't make a mistake. It's incapable of error because it comes from God. And you see how that first that first belief, the inspiration that this is the Word of God, leads us to believe in inerrancy and infallibility. Because this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 6, starting with verse 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement, so that we who have taken refuge have a strong encouragement to hold uh, onto our hopes set before us. And so it tells us, you see that idea of infallibility. It's not that God doesn't lie. It says that he's impossible for God to lie. It's, he's infallible. It's not something he can do. It's not that he, he just refuses to do it. He's not capable of 
making lies and telling lies. And so this is the infallibility of God. And so if this is the word of God coming from God who is impossible to lie, who is infallible, then that word must like also be infallible. In the opening of his letter to the young pastor Titus, Paul says this, Titus 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie. And so Paul is writing this letter based on the idea that God cannot lie. He's teaching this young man that this is the knowledge of truth. Why is it truth? Because God cannot lie. That's what he's, he's teaching him. Promised long ago, but at the proper time manifested, even his word in the proclamation which, which I've been entrusted to and am now passing on to Titus through this book. Now, when we talk about the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible, we have to recognize some things. because This is where people start to attack the Bible. We recognize you can be infallible, inerrant, and still use things like figures of speech, rounding of numbers, uh, the literary devices, poetic language, uh, pre-scientific phenomen- phenomenalistic descriptions. What does that mean? It means we say things like the sun rises, right? The Bible says the sun will rise. Well, we know the sun actually doesn't rise, right? The sun stays still. It's the earth that moves, right? And so, so when the Bible says, you know, we see the sun rising, it's inaccurate because that's not the way it really works. We know... But he's speaking in common, we would say that same thing. And we're not inaccurate. We're not lying. We just understand that what we mean by the sun rises or the moon rises or, or so forth. It's, we're not speaking scientifically accurate. We understand the Bible uses those things and is still completely accurate. A- another one would be, who knows... I hate that Elaine's not here this morning because I was counting on her to be here because I knew she would know this, but there's probably... Somebody else smart in here too, besides me, um, or not besides me. What is pi? The number pi. Three point one four. Is he right? Is he accurate? Is he accurate, Randy? That's an approximation, right? That's what we use because pi is a never-ending number, right? It's it keeps on. I mean, if you. you <laughs> you know, you'd be, you, it's, and so you, we round it off, we give an approximation, but we're accurate. You know, you're not in error when you say that. We understand that. And so when the Bible does those same things, it's not a sign of, of error or it being fallible. It is something we know that it was written by humans to speak to humans the way humans work. And so we understand that and accept that. So let's take a moment and see what Jesus thought about inerrancy. Um, So we saw what Jesus thought about inspiration. How did he react to the scriptures when it came to inerrancy? Well, first we notice that Jesus thought the Bible was historically accurate, that the history that the Bible gave was right. Uh, I'll give you some examples. In Matthew 12, verse 40, it says, For just as a Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish. So Jesus is saying what we read in the Old Testament about Jonah going into the belly of the whale actually happened. He 
he proclaims this is truth. The Bible said it. I'm telling you, it was accurate. In verse nine, in chapter in Matthew chapter nineteen, he speaks about Moses and what Moses did. In verse in Matthew chapter twenty four, verse thirty eight, he says, "And in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark." One of the great debates in our in our scientific world was: Was there a worldwide flood? Well, Jesus says it happened. That when the Bible taught about Noah, that this was accurate history. And so Jesus quotes the history of the Bible as though it's accurate. His expectation is it's right. It's telling us the truth about those things that happened. But Jesus also speaks of the Scripture as, as, he, as he thought about them historically accurate. He also thought them to be accurate when they relayed future events too. Um, Luke 24, verse 44, it says, this is, uh, he said, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written. So Jesus is explaining all that's going on after his death, burial, resurrection, that these things must happen. The scriptures, so, so he's approaching scripture. The Bible says this is going to happen. The Bible is incapable of making an error, so it must be going to happen. <laughs> this is his expectation. He, he's basing that on the infallibility of scripture. Scripture can't make an error. It's impossible for it to be an error because it's impossible for God to tell us a lie. And so whatever hasn't happened must yet be to happen. This is kind of the idea when we talked about Jesus' return, right? That, that it hasn't happened yet. The Bible says it's going to happen, so we rest assured it will happen because the Bible is infallible. The things that it says will happen must happen. And so we look at the Bible this way, as both inerrant and infallible. It is a good truth source, and we can base our lives on that. So when the Bible comes from God to man, it is reliable, accurate truth. Now, I know many people who would agree with that, but the problem is, you know, they like, they would, if we ask each other, do you believe the Bible is accurate? Yes, I do. You know, do you believe it comes from God? Yes, I do. What's the problem? I don't understand it. This becomes the, the rub part is we can have that faith, but then Getting what God wanted us to get out of it is, is the challenge for us to, to understand it and to take it and apply it to our lives and to run our lives through the filter of Scripture. That you can have these two basic faiths. It is from God, it is inspired, it is God-breathed, and it is accurate, inerrant, and infallible. But i got to somehow get it from there into my life. And that's where we rely on the third one, Enlightenment. And yes, again, I spelled it that way on purpose. See, they, they feel, I think people sometimes when it comes to Scripture, and they hold the Bible, they know what's in it. They, they know this is God speaking to them. They know it's accurate and it would be profitable for them. But they kind of feel like the kid who's starving to death and he's got a can of SpaghettiOs right in front of him, but no can opener to open it. To which to get at the food on the inside. And I think that's the way sometimes we, we maybe feel about that. 
And so what I've done, so we're going to talk about enlightenment. Probably the, the, the proper theological term for this is actually illumination, which I could have used and it would have been the right kind. I could have had my eye that I needed. But I, I want us to, to I, I wrote it this way because I want this to hopefully seed itself in your memory. Because this is kind of where we go from what we believe about the Bible and getting it into our life. Now, the pattern so far through this sermon has been we've talked about the idea and what the Scripture teaches about the Bible. And then we looked at how Jesus reacted in the same way towards the Scripture. On this one, we're going to flip it around. We're going to start with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who actually teaches us about enlightenment. He, he's probably the strongest teacher on this belief and, and of enlightenment and illumination. And he's the one who tells us about it. It comes from John's gospel. We're going to look at a portion of chapter 14 and a portion of chapter 16. The setting of this teaching in John's gospel from 13 through 16 and 17 is it's that probably that Thursday night of Holy Week. Uh, the night of the Passover. And they're sitting around the table uh, before Jesus is betrayed, before he goes to the garden. He, he's realized his time has come, and he's getting ready to leave the disciples. And, and he's trying to prepare them for the things that are going to happen. Uh, what's going to happen in their presence, you know, his betrayal, his, his uh, crucifixion, and then what will happen after that. And so as they sit around the table, Jesus starts this, this discussion uh, and, and getting his, his disciples ready for his departure. John 14 is one that you remember. The, the chapter John 14 starts off with, with one of your probably favorite verses or one you at least remember, you know, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'll come again that where I am, you may be also, right? You know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That starts chapter 14. Well, a little later in verse 16 of 14, it says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So he's, he's comforted them. I'm getting ready to leave, but you're not going to be left alone. I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send somebody to help you too. Uh, and it goes on, so he'll send you another helper to be with you forever. Even, now listen how he refers to it, the Spirit of truth. Who, you, who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and where? In you. And that's why we're using the word enlightenment. Is that, that Jesus promised that the, the helper was coming. The spirit of truth and he was going to dwell with you and in you. And so God has filled us, given his followers, those are who are of him, the resource that we need to understand the Bible. We have the spirit of truth in us. Now, it's interesting when you think about the whole, we talked about inspiration and how men uh, were carried along. And who carried them along to write the words of God? The Holy Spirit. And then who does God promise to give us so that he will help us? The whole same 
Holy Spirit. And so our connection with the Scriptures and understanding the Scriptures comes in this belief and enlightenment that we have the Spirit of truth in us to help us understand. So after that, uh, he, he talks about this. Um, and so that's why we use the enlightenment. Um, the next whole section, verses 18 through 24, go on to talk about, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and you will know you love me by keeping my commandments, which I think would make me want to say, well, I love you. I just want to know your commandments, right? I want to know what you command so I can show you that I love you. In verse, so then in verse 26, John chapter 14, verse 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. And so this promise to the disciples is, is that I'm going to ask God. You're going to have the Spirit in you. He's going to be your teacher. He's going to uh, reveal things to you. And he's going to help you remember all that I've said to you. So this helper is there to help us get at Scripture. The, the meal continues and Jesus teaches a number of other things. And then in John 16, starting with verse 13, 14, he comes back to this idea to remind the disciples what's going to happen. This is what it says. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you things that are to come. And he will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so he's just showing again this process. Of, like I said, the, the theological term is illumination. We're calling it insight. That, that is the Holy Spirit's job to, to take from God his words and help us understand it, to guide us into all truth, to speak to us on God's behalf so that we hear that. And so when we get in the Scriptures, we can trust that they're they're accurate, there's inerrancy, that they're the Word of God because they're inspiration and people have been carried along and, and give us the Word of God. And then we have access to it because we have the same Spirit living in us to help us understand it. So we first recognize that in, in John 16, Jesus is teaching the disciples how they're going to learn in the future. And so after he leaves them, the Spirit's going to help them continue to learn. Now, we're going to flip it back the other way. It's interesting. We see the church and at least some of the disciples referencing this idea. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 and 18, takes this teaching from Jesus out of John, and he's praying that for the church at Ephesus. This is what he says. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the hearts, having your eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so, so uh, Paul is praying that the church will now receive this promise and, and that they will grow in the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, having their hearts enlightened. Just a quick couple of thoughts about that. Um, again, remember that when when we come to the scriptures, because the Spirit's in us, we have access to the author. You know, I have a, a lot of favorite books, and how many of you have your favorite books? And you'd like, I would just love to sit down with the author sometime and talk to them about this book. Tell them well, you have that access. You have access to the to the the, the writing agent. <laughs> 
And, and so you can talk, well, what do you mean when you said this? And when you, what was this about? And you have that access. And I think we need to make sure we do that. Uh, uh, access the author. Second, we need to realize that, that preaching, teaching, this is all part of our receiving the word here today. Uh, and, and not just here. Uh, those of you who are watching uh, on TV, uh, those of you who are looking at things that right now media, uh, those of you who are doing devotionals, whenever you do that, whenever and in whatever way you expose yourself to scriptures, you're, you're showing yourself to the word of God and you can use the Holy Spirit to help you understand those things. Just be careful that you're being exposed to the Bible, to the actual letters of scripture, because that's where the inerrancy and the inspirations at a lot of people have their favorite devotional writer those guys aren't inspired <laughs> and they're not inaccurate they may have some good stuff and it may help you but focus on the scripture part and use their thoughts as the secondary supplementary part and don't get that confused um i i once was in a church um actually we were visiting a church when we had just moved to south carolina and uh they this was back when the 40 40 days of purpose was popular and uh, a guy got up to give his testimony about how going through that was was you know beneficial to his life and the statement he made was i know matthew mark and luke and john were were inspired but i think rick warren is just as inspired as anything they wrote and uh, yeah i see some eyes out there like i was like okay (laughs) i'm not sure about that (laughs) And so Rick Warren wrote some good stuff, but the Bible is what we want to rely on and use whatever your favorite writer is to contribute to that. And that's just a caution on that because the Bible does tell us in Ephesians 4 that we have teachers and preachers and and so forth to help us understand and grow in our faith so that we'll be adequate and prepared. Now, back in the day before we didn't see each other for a long time, we used to give out little worship bulletins. You didn't get one today. But there was a, you may remember, there was a section in that that said, what did you hear? What will you do about what you heard? And who will you tell what you heard? And that question, those three questions come from this idea of enlightenment. That when you show up in this place and you start to, to come into the spirit and you, you sing and you worship and you invite the spirit here. And then we start to expose ourselves to scripture, right? And I want you to listen to the scripture more than you listen to me and take anything I say and run it through scripture to make sure it's accurate. But as you expose yourself to scripture, right? And, and you have the spirit in you and he wants to talk to you. He wants to communicate with you. You should be here hearing from God. And so the question you should always ask when you're exposed to Scripture is, what did I hear? Then the second question is, now what should I do about what I heard? And then third, I encourage you to tell somebody what you heard because that brings in that whole accountability thing. That when we share it with others, it it somehow makes it more real to us. We're more accountable for it. We, We follow through better. And that's just an encouragement to do that. But those three questions are come from this belief in the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And so each week we need to ask ourselves that. What did I hear? What will I do? Who will I tell? Let me give you a couple of other action steps. Um, as we think about these three eyes: Inspiration, inerrancy or infallibility, and enlightenment. 
as we think about these, let's think, let me give you three. And they're really probably more attitudes this week than actual action steps. Uh, I think you can put some action behind it. But, but first, the first one is, is the attitude is approach the Bible, the entire Bible, like it's all red letters. You know what I mean by that? And we all like, we like the red letter Bibles, you know, oh, I'm going to turn over here and see what Jesus said, right? Well, if it's all from God, if it's all inspired, then it's all should be red letters. Now, I like to turn and see what Jesus actually said, as I quoted him today, how he reacted to inerrancy and, and inspiration himself. But just to look at the whole scripture as this is all red letters. This is all from God, from this cover to that cover is all from God. And therefore, it's all good for teaching, convincing us of our faith, correcting us from error, and helping us mature as, as disciples and followers of Jesus. The second action step or attitude, approach the Bible as your primary truth source. Like I said last week, most of us take truth, our truth sources and we mix them from a whole collaboration of, of sources. We take what Bible says, we take what I think, we take what, you know, somebody else says, we take, we take my experience, we, we take all kinds of truth information and we kind of slam it together. And, and there comes times, I'm afraid, when, when those other sources kind of overrule the Bible. And we just have to take take ourselves captive. We almost have to make ourselves do it, that we make the Bible the primary truth source. That my experience, what other people say, what I've read, what I see on TV or the Internet or, or whatever, that that comes and goes through the Scriptures last. And the Scripture becomes that, that final source. There's an example, I think, of Jesus doing that. And it comes from Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. And it, it, Jesus was asked a question about divorce. He said, and he, so he, he answered and said, Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so he quotes Scripture. He said, Haven't you read this? This is, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Scriptures say. So he references Scripture. And then verse 6, he says, So they are no longer two but one flesh. Whatever God has joined together, let man separate. And that's just an example of how Jesus used Scripture as his primary truth source. He, he looked at Scripture. He said, this is what the Bible says. So, or therefore, do this. And that's what it means to make Scripture. I read the Scripture. Then I apply it to my situation. The Bible says this. So this is what I will do. And this is how I will answer. And so we see Jesus himself doing that same idea, making the Bible his primary truth source. Third action step or attitude for this week is each time you expose yourself to the Scriptures, expose yourself to the Bible or expose to the Bible, as you sit in church, as you sit down in your quiet time and read a devotional, uh, as you listen to a podcast or, or something on Right Now Media or, or listen to the radio station, I would encourage you to, to utter a quick little prayer that simply says, God, give me ears to hear. 
That comes from Revelation 3.22, by the way. Lord, you're speaking now. Give me ears to hear. I want to hear what you say so I know what I can do so that I will show you that I love you because you've given me what I need to hear you. Guide me in your truth. And so every time, I mean, if you're listening to the Christian radio station, they start reading scripture. I mean, it don't take but a second. God, give me ears to hear and perk yourself up and listen because that is the inspired, infallible word of God that you're being exposed to. And it needs to be our primary source of truth. Let me say a quick prayer. Lord, I pray that we are humbled by the thought that you would take notice of us, that you would speak to us, that you'd care about us, and that you would want us to know you and know what pleases you, know how to love you and know how to show that love to you, Father. And you've given us your word. Lord, I pray that as we think about what we hold in our hands, what we hear when we read your word, the infallible, inspired word of God, that we will be humbled, that we will have a, a higher attitude about Scripture, that we will not neglect it, that we will cherish it, um, that we will honor it, and that we will make it primary in our lives. I pray that you forgive me where I've failed, where I've taken it nonchalantly, and where... Uh, what I have in these days, I've just not used and cherished that way, Father. I pray that you will give us a hunger for your word. That we will find it as Jesus did, the bread, the bread of life. That, that this is where life comes from as we hang on the words of God. I pray, Father, for those who just this morning are now faced with some reality of, of living their life and making choices in their lives based on Scripture. I pray that the Scriptures will guide their decisions and that they will choose to live their life based on that. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done to us and for us. I thank you for speaking. Give us ears to hear you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.